0: Today. It is all about Isaiah 7, verse 14. And it is a it is a way more complicated verse than meets the eye. So if you think you have got this verse sorted, you'll find today rather interesting. It's it's a very Christmassy verse. It's the kind of verse that you put on a Christmas card if you're organizing a carol service. Interspersed between "Joy to the World," you have this verse: "The Lord Himself will give you a sign: the Virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and call him Emmanuel." And we know that this verse does actually speak about the birth of Jesus and his virgin birth because Matthew quotes this verse in his gospel when Matthew is is laying out the gospel. Uh, to Jewish people, because that was his purpose. He, he references this verse, and, and in Matthew 1, we read this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother was pledged to be married, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Then there's that whole part about Joseph thinking about terminating his uh, relationship with Mary. But the Lord speaks to him and tells him to not do that uh, because what is within her is of the Holy Spirit. And then Matthew says in Matthew 1.22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And here's the quote of Isaiah 7.14. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means... God with us. And as I said, uh, uh, Matthew uses this verse to uh, justify or explain the virgin birth of Jesus, and he reiterates that in verse 25, talking about Joseph. He had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And one of the reasons why I'm going to do a deep Dive into Isaiah 7:14 is, is because it touches on the subject of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is all about how we interpret the Bible or any literature for that matter. It's not unique to the scripture. And you do need to look at verses in the original contexts. And it's like Matthew just plucks this verse. Right out of its original context in Isaiah 7 and gives it a whole new meaning. And researchers tell us that there are 350 allusions to Jesus in the Old Testament. If if you want them, I could probably send you a little PDF I downloaded of the internet. But there are these many hidden references to Jesus, and this is one of them. An illusion is something where it's not crystal clear. It's not a slam dunk situation. It's kind of a hint. There's a clue in the verse. There's a a very subtle reference in the verse to something. That's what an illusion is. And there are 350 allusions to Jesus in the Old Testament. Some of them are very clear, like Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, a son is given. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. A while ago, Jolene preached, I'm not sure if she came here as well, but on Isaiah 42, which is about the servant of the Lord. That's about Jesus. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus, though it doesn't mention his name. But today we're looking at Isaiah 714. And I want to take you back to the year 735 B.C., and we're in, we're in Jerusalem, but the year is important. And the, the setting is an ancient conflict that was at play, a power struggle between Syria and Israel and Judah. And believe it or not, Syria and Israel had formed an alliance together. And they were very scared of the Assyrians. And they were trying to get Judah to join their alliance against Assyria. Okay, it's very complicated stuff, I know. But just bear with me because it's important uh, for the message today. By the way, I just want to point out, isn't that terrible that at this point in history, Israel and Judah are fighting against each other? The ten tribes in the northern kingdoms are fighting against the remaining tribe in the southern kingdom, Judah. So at the start of Isaiah chapter 7, we read this. And this is the setting for Isaiah 7 verse 14, which at this point you perhaps think is all about Jesus and the virgin birth. Here we go. Remember that the context of a verse is important. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzzah, was king of Judah, king Rezan of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. There's that battle, Israel attacking Judah in the city of Jerusalem. But they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied himself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken like a tree in a forest is shaken by the wind. So the people in Judah are freaked out to use contemporary language. Ahaz is the king in Jerusalem, and his people are shaking like trees in the forest when the wind blows. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, go and meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct. The address is not too important for our purposes. But the prophet Isaiah is told to go and have a meeting with Isaiah. Uh, Sorry, with King Ahaz, because Isaiah needs to encourage Ahaz and tell him, you know, don't get into this alliance with Syria. That's not what God wants you to do. Say to him, "Be, be calm, don't be afraid, chill out. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. If ever you need an insult for someone, you can now refer to them as a smoldering stub of firewood. So Isaiah says, Don't worry about these two blokes, Rezin and Pekah. They're just smoldering stubs. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son, they've plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let's tear it apart and divide it among ourselves. Let us appoint our own king. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, says Isaiah. It will not take place. It will not happen. Don't worry about it. So as I've explained, there's this alliance happening and uh, Israel is trying to get Judah to, to fight with them against Assyria. And then there's more discussion that goes on between Isaiah the prophet and King Ahaz. One of the great things he does say to King Ahaz, it's underlined there on the screen, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And I think that's a word for all of us being Christians today. It's kind of like, you know, if you're going to stand for something, you need to stand firmly for it. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. But the message here for King Ahaz is don't be intimidated by these guys. They're not going to invade your city. You're going to be okay. Then the conversation goes on between Isaiah and King Ahaz. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign. Whether something in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Ask God for a sign. This is so that his faith can be bolstered. Because sometimes signs are a help to us. But but Ahaz is a good Baptist. So he says, I will not ask the Lord for a sign. (laughs) I like that. I will not ask the Lord (laughs) for a sign. I will not put the Lord... To the test. And then the conversation gets really interesting because Isaiah says, even though you don't want a sign, God's going to give you a sign anyway. Don't test God's patience. He's going to give you a sign. And here is the sign, verse 14 of Isaiah 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So now that I've explained the background, how many of you do think that is a clear reference to the birth of Jesus? Oh, one of you think Okay, we, we, we'll, we'll get there. So, so this is the context. Remember, it's 735 B.C. This is a conversation happening between Isaiah and King Ahaz. And this is a sign that God is giving to King Ahaz to strengthen him and to help him to make the right decision in the situation that he finds himself in. And then in, in the next chapter we see the sign actually coming to fruition. In uh, Isaiah 8, verse 3, he says, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the next verse says, And the Lord said to me, Name him Meher Shalah Hashbaz. And then this child has more than one name, as as many characters did in the Old Testament. This child is the sign. And um, we know it is because in verse 18, Isaiah writes, Here I am and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells. On Mount Sinai. So, in this original context, the child who is the sign from God, the sign of Emmanuel, that God is with us, that child's also known as Meher Shalala So, this is an interesting situation. How is it that Matthew can just pluck this verse? And now say this is evidence that Jesus was born from a virgin. And that all this took place to fulfill what the prophet had said about the Messiah. So can we also just randomly pluck verses out of the Old Testament and give them any meaning we want? Or can only the disciples who were writing the New Testament, do that. And I don't have all the answers here, friends. I'm just hopefully shedding more light on an issue. Because Matthew tells us all of this took place to fulfill what was said through the prophet. And like I said earlier... This is actually also speaking about the birth of Jesus. Some scriptures do have more than one meaning. There's the primary meaning, which was a sign for King Ahaz. But there was a a more spiritual meaning, another meaning. That even Isaiah the prophet, as he spoke, didn't realize The fullness of what he was saying. And this brings me now to one of the main points of my sermon today, and we're going to leave the history uh, behind in one sense. I want you to now just think of that conversation Jesus had on the Emmaus Road with two of the disciples. Remember, Jesus has been crucified. They don't know he's been resurrected. And they're walking on the Emmaus Road and they're downhearted. And the stranger who is Jesus comes and joins their little party as they're walking down the road and and they're chatting. And Jesus rebukes them in a sense because they hadn't realized that Jesus was going to be resurrected. And he says, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then in verse 27, we read, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's a very significant verse, I believe. That when Jesus was walking with those disciples on the Emmaus Road, he could start in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. He could go through all of the Old Testament books, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, and explain to them how so many different scriptures were actually about him. So these references are quite cryptic. They are quite hidden, which is why they needed Jesus to to make them clear to them. There are some very other strange references to Jesus in the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that the rock in the desert that the children of Israel drank from, that was Christ and who Christ accompanied them in the desert. There's a crazy reference in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul is reminding the church that, that missionaries need to be supported by the church, that those who preach the gospel should earn a living from doing so. And he quotes a verse about an ox, that you mustn't muzzle the ox when it's, when it's grinding corn. It's a quote from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 25. And I know that in Paul's mind, this verse is primarily about looking after missionaries. Because he says, is it about oxen that God is concerned? In the same way, the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel should receive their living That way, this is what Jesus meant when He said in the Sermon on the Mount, Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, He was the embodiment, the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophets spoke about. We see see Jesus in Genesis chapter 3. This reference to the one who will crush the, the head of the serpent. It's a reference to Jesus. Here are so many of the references to Jesus found in the Old Testament. He is the seed singular of Abraham, through whom the world will be blessed. He is is seen in Melchizedek, that strange priest that nobody knew where he'd come from. Jesus is seen in Abraham's ram that is substituted for Isaac. Jesus is seen in the bronze serpent in Numbers 21 that was put on a, a pole. Jesus is seen in the Passover lamb. He's seen in the scapegoat, that poor goat that on the day of atonement had hands laid upon it. And all the sins symbolically were put on the goat. And then they'd send the goat out into the wilderness, taking the people's sins with him. Jesus is seen in all the ritual of the day of atonement. Jesus is seen as a, as a, in a type of Moses, or Moses is a type of Jesus. Jesus is seen in, in the person of Joseph. I think these are conversations that Jesus had on the Emmaus Road, pointing out how all of the scriptures spoke of him. Jesus is the one who was cursed because he was hung on a tree. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. 53, Jesus is seen in Boaz, in Ruth's kinsman, Redeemer. Jesus is seen in David. Jesus is seen in the wisdom of Proverbs. Jesus is seen in the manna from heaven. He is the bread of life. Jesus is seen in the tabernacle in the wilderness, which is why John says he came and tabernacled among us. And Jesus is seen in the festivals and feasts of Israel. How many of you have played the game Where's Wally? It's a firm favorite of all grandparents and parents and children alike. If you're the one person here today that hasn't played Where's Wally, you've never played John, never played, okay, you're missing out. Basically, it's this frustrating book with pictures of little people on it, and you've got to find Where's Wally, okay? So my encouragement today is that when, you mustn't play Where's Wally anymore. You must play Where's Jesus when you read the <laughs> Old Testament. When you read in Leviticus, this one begat this one, you need to say, Where's Jesus? And you need to find him because there are at least 350 clues, hints about Jesus. And Isaiah 7 verse 14, yes, it is about a sign to a prophet facing a crisis. But if you are open to the Holy Spirit and if you allow the Lord to lead you, you will see that it's about more than just a sign for a prophet. Another thing that adds another layer of depth, is in this verse, the word virgin is the word Alma in the Hebrew, and it really just means, and true as Bob, the dictionary actually said this, alas, (laughs) you'd think it was a Scottish book, (laughs) the interpretation is, alas, damsel made virgin, that's what the word Alma means in Hebrew. So there's a, it's quite a, it means a, a young woman of marriageable age, okay, an Alma. But interestingly enough, when the, when the Greek-speaking believers, Jewish believers, translated the Old Testament into Greek, into what we call the Septuagint, when it came to picking a Greek word to translate the word Alma, even though the translation was done hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, they didn't use the Greek word for girl, niani, nianiness, they used the more technical term parthenos, which really does have a much stronger sense of it being a virgin that is being referred to. So I think that we even see divine providence in the translation of the Septuagint. But let me wrap up this morning. Let's revisit what happened on the Emmaus Road. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning Himself And their response is later, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And then later that night, Jesus meets with the disciples and he eats a piece of fish and he convinces them he is alive. And then in that upper room, he says to them, Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. The prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Do you see how the New Testament itself and Jesus affirms how much of the Old Testament is actually about him. And one more reference that I close with is, is from Acts. I close with this one because it's, it's fairly humorous, to me anyway. It's Paul's defense before King Agrippa. And uh, he's presented the gospel to King Agrippa. And he says this, I, and the underlying part, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. According to Paul, all of that is everything that the prophets and Moses said was going to happen anyway. And this is the funny part. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. It's like Julius Malium at a press conference. You are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. That's a great quote, by the way. Next time somebody challenges you on something, you can quote the Bible. I am not insane. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Let's pray. Lord, as we looked at this wonderful verse, prophesying your birth from a virgin, and that it would, re- it would represent God being with us. And we know how that ultimately reached its fulfillment in the birth of Jesus that we celebrate this week. But Lord, we must say we are challenged as we, as we read the Old Testament and, and observe the context and see what a veiled reference that really is to Jesus. But yet, Lord, you taught us and your apostles have taught us that all of the scriptures in some way point to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, we don't want to play where's Wally. We want to find you, Lord, hidden in the pages of our Bible. Lord, keep us from seeing you where you want, but help us to see you where you truly are, Lord. And may our hearts burn within us as we read your word and fellowship with others. For we prayed in Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks, everybody.